This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week is our 100th episode. Woo! We've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah. And so there'll be lots of interesting little additions here and there with voicemails and shout outs and whatnot. Yeah. And if you pledge to us, thank you so much. We got a few new names. Our community's growing. We're feeling pretty good. And we're recording this early, but when this comes out, we'll be celebrating at SVP, meeting some of the people that we've interviewed in the past year, which is really exciting. Yeah. And also, uh, we just want to say the 100-episode video, if you pledge the tier to where we're going to give you a shout-out in that video, uh, that will be a separate video from our regular episodes posted on YouTube. But keep an eye out for it. It is on our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and search for I Know Dino. And we'll also put it on Patreon so you can see it there. You'll probably get an email about it, too, if that's what your settings have. Yeah, that too. So today's episode is all about Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus is my favorite dinosaur. And as part of that, we got to interview Dr. Emmanuel Schopp. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And we are fortunate enough that we're going to be able to meet him at SVP too, so we're very excited. And of course, our dinosaur of the day is also Brontosaurus. And as usual, we have lots of dinosaur news. Yeah. So jumping right into the news, this one was sent to us by several people, but the first person was Chris on Twitter. And First, a little background. So a couple months ago, we covered an article that described how dinosaurs likely used closed mouth vocalizations, since large birds often do, and smaller birds tend to chirp and do things like that. So they would have done these closed mouth vocalizations by the use of an inflating cavity. Unfortunately, inflating cavities don't fossilize well, and since we haven't found any, it's kind of hard to say for sure whether or not they had these inflating cavities and what they would have sounded like. Now, many of the authors of that paper have written another paper about dinosaur vocalizations, which is what a lot of people were sending us. But this time, they've taken a close look at a bird from the late Cretaceous, and everybody knows birds came from dinosaurs, so it's technically a dinosaur, but it's not a non-avian dinosaur, it's pretty much just a bird. But this time, the, the bird in this case is a Vegavis I I don't know how to say it because I'm not a bird person. But it, was, it sounded like that butterfly song. I I I. 
Yeah, I probably did too many I I's because it's I A A I, but I have no idea how you say that. Little butterfly. <laughs> yeah. So it was found in Antarctica back in 1992, and it wasn't described until 2005. And then it took until 2013 before researchers realized that it had a fossilized syrinx. And a syrinx is what most birds have instead of a larynx. Well, no birds have a larynx, but most birds have a syrinx. And they use it for making sounds. Rather than our softer vocal cords in a larynx, they have a series of cartilage ring structures, and they're often on two separate branches of the trachea, which allows them to make some pretty complicated sounds. You might have heard some of those birds that can like imitate a camera shutter and like crazy complicated sounds. So that's because they have this really cool syrinx. Not all birds have a syrinx, for instance, all the New World vultures, which means North and South America, lack the organ completely, so they have to grunt and hiss instead, which is kind of fitting for a vulture. <laughs> and possibly some dinosaurs had to do the same types of noises. We talked about that back with the earlier paper. So the researchers found the syrinx, and then they CT scanned it, and they also used another fossilized syrinx, and those from a dozen extant birds or still or birds that are still around and they kind of compared them to try to figure out what it might have sounded like so one of the co-authors franz goler says that we need a lot more research into how modern birds vocalize before we can really understand what types of noises this extinct bird could make but based on the comparisons they made between the fossilized syrinx and those of living birds, they believe it probably either honked, quacked, or whistled. <laughs> it's quite a range. Yeah, so it definitely had some cool abilities. Unfortunately, they think that this is more evidence that non-avian dinosaurs that we've found didn't have a syrinx because we found it now in a bird and we found so many dinosaur fossils that they're starting to think we probably would have seen a syrinx by now in a non-avian dinosaur if they had them, which means that T-Rex probably couldn't chirp, which is kind of sad because that would be pretty awesome. If it could chirp? <laughs> yeah, or just make some other kind of little bird noise. <laughs> I would appreciate that, but it doesn't look like it happened. I still kind of like the idea of what if T-Rex was totally silent. Yeah, that'd be good too. But creepy. It's hard to say. It's really hard to prove, you know, what they sounded like when you can't find anything at all because the absence of a syrinx doesn't show anything. It could always just show up in a dinosaur in the future and then it would kind of disprove all these theories. I saw a good comic the other day. Somebody at work shared it and it was some people from the future came to our time and they're like, "Where are the spiders?" We love spiders so much. We've seen the fossils and we want to learn all about them. We built this time machine so we can go back and learn more about them. And then the people of, of present day say, oh, well, here is a wet, one of their webs right here. And they say, what? Webs? What are these webs? <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, you've only known spiders from fossils, so you don't know what webs are. And then it cuts to like, well... Think about how weird dinosaurs are. Like we only know a little bit about the weird things that birds do, but we have no idea about the weird things dinosaurs do. And then it ends with like, "Hey, can we tra time travel and see?" <laughs> it's kind dinosaurs. of a good reminder. Yeah. So what you're saying is dinosaurs might have had whips. No, not exactly. But there are <laughs> definitely things about dinosaurs that we may never know. That's true. And we only know a small, probably a very small fraction of what they looked like or did or whatever. 
Yeah, it's a good point. Next in the news, thanks again to Chris, who shared this one via Twitter as well. The Guardian reported on the UK's paleontology museums and their challenges. And uh, it was interesting. One challenge is how most museum visitors assume that most skeletons are of dinosaurs because there's so many fossils of dinosaurs on display. and <laughs> They're part of touring exhibitions. They're in books. They're available in gift shops, which... That is true because like Dimetrodon, people always think is a dinosaur, for example, or other times it's it's a mammal, but you just see the fossil and people think, oh, dinosaur. Hmm. Wait, no, that's something that lived only 10,000 years ago. Yep. <laughs> There's a, another challenge in the UK anyways, the idea that paleontology doesn't really exist in the UK, which is interesting because we're always talking about cool stuff that's happening in the UK, but maybe that's just because we're really big dinosaur enthusiasts. Well, we also interview a lot of paleontologists in the UK, too. Yeah. Well, apparently this depends on the region that you're in. And the author's point was, well, there's more than just the Natural History Museum in London. There's a lot of local museums. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this misconception that museums are full of static displays, which is also interesting and something we've been learning more about, especially with like the Royal Tyrell, how they're always changing up their displays and using new things. So the article goes on to list a number of museums and other paleontological sites worth visiting in the UK. So I'll, I'll just list a few. We, we should add some of these to our own list next time we visit. Yeah. Uh, so they have the British Geological Survey, Dinosaur Isle, the Dinosaur Museum, Dorset County Museum, Great North Museum, Hancock, the Jurassic Coast, Lyme Regis Museum, Manchester Museum, Royal Albert Memorial Museum, Think Tank, World Museum, and Yorkshire Museum. And that's not even all of them. Plus, they have a little description of, of what you can find in these museums. So we'll post the link on our blog. You can check it out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the UK is probably the second most active group or maybe UK and Canada and the US all have a ton of active paleontologists and it's always fun talking to people over there. They, in a couple of the interviews though, they have mentioned that there's this disproportionate American dinosaur, like, what's the word? Fantasy, I guess, <laughs> for like the Hell Creek dinosaurs where everyone thinks of T-Rex fighting Triceratops. But there were lots of dinosaurs in the UK that were really interesting too, but a lot of people there don't really know about them and what the UK has to offer paleontologically also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's good to know. Next, Digital Spy and Sci-Fi reported on the latest Jurassic World 2 news, which... I'm not surprised, but I am surprised that we're getting so much news this early on. <laughs> I can only imagine what it'll be like come 2018 Yeah, as we get closer. Well, I can't imagine it'll be similar to 2015. But <laughs> anyway, so this article is that Jurassic World 2 may be about animal, specifically dinosaur rights. And according to an interview, the new director, J.A. Bayona, said, quote, both Jack Horner and me, we are concerned with man's relationship with animals. Dinosaurs are a parable of the treatment of today's animals, abuse, experiments in medicine, pets. We have wild animals in zoos like prisons. Military use has been made of them, animals and weapons, end quote. And in an interview with Jurassic Outpost, Colin Trevorrow said that he's not that interested in militarized dinosaurs, and we've talked about that before. He's also described Jurassic World 2 as, quote, Jurassic World health with exacerbated consumerism, end quote, and that the movie would, quote, shift to deal with more complex issues. So 
it's interesting to see what was started out as what like a monster movie kind of yeah more complex but then at the same time people are speculating that since bayona has some horror movie background that it might be more like that so it's kind of hard to tell now there's some conflicting information coming out yeah next there's been a slew of videos showing people in t-rex costumes and that's not new but the ones from this week were pretty good Uh, according to mvcla in san bernardino county one woman wanted to make people smile and forget about the creepy clown sightings around the country. So she and her three daughters dressed up in dinosaur costumes and danced on a golf course, and they got lots of honks from passing cars. There's also, according to CNET, two people in T-Rex costumes who danced on a Florida beach right before Hurricane Matthew hit, which is ballsy. (laughs) Anyway, they held hands and they trotted around in the sand. It looked very windy in the video. And last, according to NFL, football player Patrick Peterson took part in the Arizona Cardinals Chuck It to the Bucket competition by dancing in a dinosaur costume on the field and catching a football. And he sidesteps really well. does almost a crab walk. Well, not on his, but on his feet. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's pretty funny, especially on loop. (laughs) It makes a good gif. Yeah, it does. Yeah. We just got one of those dinosaur costumes, too, that might show up in our video. Yeah, Garrett looks hilarious in it, <laughs> especially when he's trying to put it on. I, I was thinking maybe we should make a video of you trying to put it on. I don't think we should. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a reason you don't see too many of those. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. And now on to our interview with Dr. Emmanuel Schopp and... Dr. Emmanuel Schopp is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Turin in Torino, Italy, as well as the author of numerous papers, one of the most well-known being a specimen-level phylogenetic analysis and taxonomic revision of Diplodocae 
Dinosauria sauropoda, a study published in 2015 about 81 sauropod specimens, which found Brontosaurus to be a valid genus again, and making him one of my favorite people. And he is currently working with lizards, trying to understand the methodology and phylogeny as well. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good, and you? Good. So we have, uh, we wrote up like a short introduction, and if you don't mind, I can read it, and then you tell me if we got anything wrong, or if there's anything, any information you'd want us to add. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, Dr. Emmanuel Chop is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Turin in Torino, Italy, as well as the author of numerous papers, one of the most well-known being a specimen-level phylogenetic analysis and taxonomic revision of diplodocus. Decay, Dinosauria sauropoda, a study published in 2015 about 81 sauropod specimens, which found Brontosaurus to be a valid genus again. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like us to I know you, you've, you've done other papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can just state that I'm currently working with lizards. Okay. Which might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with lizards? I'm actually trying to understand how the methodology of specimen level phylogeny works best. Hmm. So with lizards, I already know where to what species they belong, so I can test whatever I I need to do to to make the best analysis. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so um, yeah, if we could just dive right in. How did you first become interested in dinosaurs and decide to become to go the paleontology route? Well, there was actually already as a kid, as most at least dinosaur paleontologists. We had dinosaurs at school, and at the same time, actually, there was a, a new museum opening close to where I grew up, grew up, and um, they showed dinosaurs from North America. And uh, so the the interests that started with the school got just fed more by this museum. And it showed to me that it was possible to to do actually paleontology in Switzerland as well. Wonderful. Were there any particular dinosaurs that stood out to you? Not really. <laughs> just I in guess general. just all of them were kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. So... How did you decide to do the study that came out last year where you analyzed the 81 sauropod specimens? Like, What, what prompted that? This also has to do with that museum uh, close to where I grew up. Because the museum is um, it's called Saurier Museum, mm-hmm. Atal. And uh, it had it own, its own dig site in Wyoming, mm-hmm. which is the on the famous Howe Ranch, where the American Museum also dug in, in the 30s. And from there, they had a big collection of diplodocid uh, sauropods. And looking into that uh, with my soon-to-become PhD supervisor back in 2009, we, we saw that there is still a lot of work to do, even though uh, most of it seems to or seem to have been known already. And with these new specimens that uh, have never been studied in detail at that Sauer Museum, uh, we could actually try to do a, a reanalysis of the systematics and the taxonomy of this group. Cool. So how many places 
did you end up going to study these specimens? I know in in the paper it mentions a few different continents. So where specifically did you go? Well, I went to numerous museums in, in Europe and in the United States. I think there were around 20 or so different museum and university collections that I visited. And of course, the most important ones are the American Museum in New York, the Yale Peabody Museum in New Haven, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, uh, but also the Museum für Naturkunde in Berlin, in Germany, or, or other, other big institutions. Wow. Yeah. So that then you spent a probably a, a good chunk of time just traveling, right? <laughs> Getting to all these museums. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> How long did it take to complete the study? It was the the main part of my PhD. So basically, uh, I started collecting data for this in 2010 and published in 2015. So it was not the only thing I did, but. Uh, yeah, the first collections of data were five years before publication. Wonderful. And then how big was the, the team who worked on this with you? Well, I did most of the collection visits myself, mm -hmm. but there was obviously my PhD supervisor who was involved in, uh, in the development and methodological issues. And then about a year before publication, when it went on through uh, revisions, the entire project, uh, we invited Roger Benson from University of Oxford to, to contribute as well with a, um, a method that he actually developed and, and applied to plesiosaurs to try to understand which specimens actually belong to what species. And, uh, where to to define those boundaries between individuals and species and, and genera. Oh, that's interesting. I know in the paper you talk a lot about like the number of vertebra or vertebrae in the neck of some of the sauropods. Is that kind of yeah. a thing that he was using with the plesiosaurs too? Well, in that methodology that he used, it was more to understand how many or how much different the, the single specimens are and, and how much uh, variability we can accept within the species or when we have to decide that uh, they should be considered different genera. Hmm. So it did not actually go onto specific uh, single specific features like the number of, of vertebrae. Hmm. So was the most surprising find about Brontosaurus, or were there other surprises in, in the study? There were two big surprises. One is, of course, Brontosaurus, which we definitely did not expect in the beginning. <laughs> but the other big surprise was also that when applying these kind of numerical rules to the entire group of diplodocids, we also saw that the, the Portuguese species, Dinherosaurus lurinianensis, was actually not different enough from the North American Supersaurus vivianensis to be a, a separate genus. Hmm. So earlier studies already found the two as a sister taxa, which means they're the most closely related or they're more closely related to each other than to any other uh, diplodocid. Hmm. 
but our analysis was the first to show that these differences were not so many and therefore to to state that the inheritors learning should actually be a species of supersaurus interesting and this is this is the first sauropod uh, where we have convincing evidence that the same genus was present in the late Jurassic of North America and Portugal. Oh, wow. So, yeah, this was kind of nice, but surprising also. Sure, yeah. It's fairly far away <laughs> from each other. Well, yeah, it was closer back well, in back time. Then, yeah, but still. <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, there is evidence for Stegosaurus or Allosaurus. Uh, so in other dinosaur groups, we have shared the genera, but there was no good evidence yet for sauropods. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, we've ever studied that change. So how exactly did you analyze all of these specimens? What, uh, once you go to the museum, is it a matter of just kind of carefully looking or CT scans or something else? It was more just a matter of very careful looking. <laughs> <laughs> we created this... Um, matrix it's called it's a list of of characteristics in in the bones of the entire skeleton uh, and we found almost 500 of those characteristics in the end that we had to check in every single specimen so it was really just going through all the collections and trying to understand first which bones actually belong to a single individual mm -hmm. which was already not such an easy uh, task. <laughs> <laughs> and then with this, we could just check within this list uh, if these characteristics were present or not in uh, those individuals that, we, that, that I was studying. And with this list could then be fed into a software uh, which is called TNT. And that software calculates actually the, the relationships between the individuals in this case, usually this is done with, with species, but in our case, uh, we did this with individuals exactly because we wanted to test which specimen belongs to what species. I, so I read that in, in, in an article, I believe you said this study couldn't have been done 15 years ago, but now mm -hmm. we've had, there are more, enough specimens to study. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just... Uh, I'm wondering if if we can expect these kinds of big studies more in the future because it seems like we we keep finding more and more specimens of. of yes, you know. definitely. <laughs> the problem was before that most of these individual specimens were extremely incomplete, and especially the the reference specimens for the single species. So every species has its own reference specimen, which is tied to the specific name. And some of them only preserve uh, tail vertebrae, other ones only preserve teeth, some preserve only some collection of, of uh, leg bones. And obviously these are not directly comparable. So when we just try to understand uh, the diversity based on these specimens, we cannot really say anything. They could all be the same thing. Mm -hmm. But with new and more complete specimens that actually preserve uh, at least parts 
of a single individual that overlap with several different incomplete specimens, we can tie them together. And in the last 15 years, more and more of these complete specimens have been dug up. And especially in diplodocids, this collection at the museum in Switzerland was very important because they had uh, three or four really nice, uh, nicely preserved specimens that that provided this kind of backbone of the analyses where incomplete specimens could be compared through those uh, with each other indirectly. Yeah. It, so reading a number of articles, it seems like not everybody is on, fully on board with the findings from this study. I just want to, I was curious, what do you think of that? Like, is it, I guess if we can expect more of these studies, maybe that'll help get people more on board or we, I don't know, we see some, some sort of debate. <laughs> yeah, there is a, there has been quite a big debate since publication already, like very fast after. It's interesting to me. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing more and more papers coming out on this and to be like in this discussion. It is debated mostly because of these propositions of um, numerical approaches to decide where to put boundaries between species and genera. Uh, this is, or this has been done in the past, more subjectively. We tried with these numerical approaches to be a bit more objective and, and uh, repeatable so that people can take our analysis and do their own stuff mm -hmm. and test uh, our, also our the methodologies that we used. But yeah, because this is kind of a, of a new approach, there is obviously a discussion around it. And yeah, we will see where, where it brings us. It's this taxonomic changes are actually like almost daily daily work of, of scientists mm -hmm. at least of system uh, people working in systematics so it was not so surprising <laughs> to find or to, to to have changes in taxonomy when doing such a, an extensive work it was just interesting because because brontosaurus was in there and such a popular dinosaur <laughs> genus so that everybody just uh, was happy to have it back <laughs> yeah that's true so what i i think i remember a few of the details but what were the differences you found with brontosaurus that you decided that it was significant enough to warrant its own genus well the the most important thing here is that uh, it's not like single important features that distinguish them. It's the number of features that are numerous enough to to allow a, a distinction at, at the generic level so that the, the two genera are actually different. Mm. Uh, there are differences in the shoulder girdle, in the, some tail bones, and in some foot bones. These are probably not really visible, or probably not, were probably not really visible in, in the living animal, but but can be seen in the bones themselves as 
kind of anatomical details, but the sum of these details uh, allowed to to distinguish them as genera. Okay. So it's really more like a, a question of how many different mutations would happen and then you can kind of tell how long ago they would have had to split. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> of course, we don't know exactly uh, how many mutations had to happen for what kind of difference in the bone. Hmm. Uh, this is almost impossible to know. But uh, the idea behind it was was basically the same. And methodologies like this are used with molecular phylogenies also, uh, where people today study living animals and try to understand how much or how different they should be <laughs> to mm. be called different species and different genera. So, yeah, it's, it's just um, an assessment of variability and how much we can, how much has been interpreted in the past as enough for different species and uh, kind of applying this more uh, universally to, to the entire group of diplodocids. Yeah, I like that that approach. And I know typically the best you can do is have consistency within a specific group, like a subset of sauropods or hadrosaurids or something, yeah. because then even between groups, like the difference between a, a genus in hadrosaurids might be much more specific than a genus within yeah. uh, titanosaurs or something. <laughs> yeah, this is actually a very interesting point because it's not just like a a methodological issue but it's also a historical issue mm -hmm. because in some groups uh, researchers just tended to have or to combine or to allow more variability than in, for a species than in other groups and taxonomy is about stability so to some extent, we also have to to think about this historical uh, interpretations and, and uh, work them into consistent interpretations. Is that what a lot of the blowback about brontosaurus is, just the fact that it's not been used for a long time? Probably. It, there is another reason also, because uh, if you actually look at the phylogenetic trees that we got, Brontosaurus is still the, the closest genus to Apatosaurus. So actually, uh, just based on, on what you see on the tree, you could also say that the two branches of the tree with Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus can still be regarded as belonging to a single genus mm. because there's nothing in between that we know should be something else. So it is really just these numerical approaches that we, uh, that we proposed here and uh, the idea of consistency uh, of, of a number of changes that was usually considered enough for, for different genera in the Diplodocus part of the tree, but apparently not in the Patasaurus <laughs> part of the tree. That's funny. So kind of found that strange and... and uh, yeah, applying a consistent variability also in Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus came up as a different genus. Mm. And you had, 
I think, three different species of brontosaurus and two of apatosaurus in the end. Am I right about that? Yes. Yes. The, the number of species is actually the same as, as the one that we had before. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> so yeah. did any species get um, synonymized or split out in your study? Not in apatosaurus, okay. no. But they did in other parts of the analysis? Um, well, we found some to be to be invalid, like the Pilaticus lacustris, which is just a set of teeth. Hmm. So there is no diagnostic features in there. Also the Pilaticus longus, uh, which is basically a series of, of tail vertebrae, but only two of them are reasonably complete. Uh, and also there, there's not really a diagnostic character that you could use to define the species. So. Um, these two were invalid, and the analysis also confirmed earlier interpretations of Seismosaurus being just a species of Diplodocus. So this synonymy, which was proposed before already, was confirmed by our analysis. Cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm I'm curious because I saw some of your other papers have to do with Chimarosaurus or other sauropods. Yeah, I was just wondering, what it, was that your focus for your PhD, sauropods in general? No, the focus was really uh, diplodocids. Okay. <laughs> the PhD, the, the work on Camarasaurus I did uh, in the first postdoc, just after the PhD. I still have to get around to finish that up <laughs> <laughs> and, and publish that entire uh, phylogeny. I hope to get that done soon as well. <laughs> That's great. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the, the the group of people who were excited when when you said Brontosaurus is a valid genus again. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Happy to be a third. <laughs> <laughs> also, we, so we just want to ask, what is your favorite dinosaur, personally? Uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> I think I don't really have a favorite species. I find sauropods cool because, probably mostly because I specialize most in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, I find the one even cooler that I describe myself is <laughs> Katadoku Sibirai. But uh, yeah, that's more like uh, not because of, of the animal it is, but because it is kind of my dinosaur baby. <laughs> <laughs> That That's cool. Sense, yeah. When did you discover that one or name it? That was also part of my PhD. It was one of the first Tipidocid specimens I looked in detail at. Um, I studied in detail at the museum in Switzerland. And um, that was published in 2012 online. Okay. And 2013 in print. Cool. Yeah, that's great. I think that would be my favorite dinosaur if I found one too, regardless of what it was. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite logical. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned earlier that you're currently working with lizards and doing sort of the same thing that you did with the uh, diplodocids. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm trying to perfectionize. Can you say that? Sure. <laughs> the, the methodology of uh, specimen level phylogeny 
mostly because this has not really been tested with uh, living animals. So uh, these tests that I'm doing right now and um, in these living lizards, I know the species where the skeletons I'm studying belong to. So I can just adapt all the different factors in the methodology to get the tree as I would expect the tree should be. Mm-hmm. And then obviously apply it again to, to fossils uh, in future. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if once you've... It looks from Yeah, once you've perfected it too, do you think more people will come to accept this new way of of looking at dinosaurs? Well, there are there are already many more studies like this of different sauropod uh, not sauropod dinosaur groups. Mm-hmm. So it's a methodology that is being used more and more in in vertebrate paleontology as well. Mm-hmm. It's actually uh, what is being used almost always in in uh, biology so if you have molecular phylogenies of of living animals like 99 percent of them are specimen level um so it is interesting also from this point of view to apply the same or a similar approach to to fossils also yeah but these analyses in biology are based on the on dna and not on the bones themselves so we don't really know how uh, the methodology behaves uh, when studying bones. And that's the main goal here with, with the lizard project. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We're really well, excited. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for the invitation. I'm <laughs> glad to be the 100th episode topic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Us too. <laughs> like I said, Brontosaurus is my favorite, so. <laughs> so you got it too. <laughs> and now on for our dinosaur of the day, Brontosaurus, which again is my favorite dinosaur, and I completely credit the movie The Land Before Time for that one. Watched it every day for a year as a kid. It drove my dad nuts, I'm sure. You wore out your VHS tape. Sure did. <laughs> So, the name Brontosaurus means thunder lizard, and the type species is Brontosaurus excelsus, which Charles Marsh named in 1879. The species name excelsus means noble or high. That's quite an epic name, Brontosaurus excelsus. Yeah. Brontosaurus lived about 155 to 152 million years ago, and fossils have been found in Wyoming and Utah. For a long time, it was considered a junior synonym of Apatosaurus, and the original species, Brontosaurus excelsus, was reclassified as Apatosaurus excelsus in 1903. So, how did this happen? Well, the Morrison Formation was the center of the Bone Wars, which we've talked a lot about the Bone Wars in past episodes. And during the Bone Wars, there were a lot of dinosaur descriptions that were rushed so that Charles and Cope could compete to see who could name the most dinosaurs. Marsh actually named Apatosaurus in a two-paragraph article for the American Journal of Science in 1877, and then wrote a more detailed article in 1879 with a sketch of an Apatosaurus pelvis, shoulder blade, and vertebra. And again, 
Marsh named Brontosaurus in 1879. So in 1903, Elmer Riggs said that Brontosaurus was too similar to Apatosaurus, and he called Brontosaurus Excelsis Apatosaurus Excelsis. Apatosaurus was named first, so Brontosaurus became a synonym. However, (laughs) I like this fact, Henry Fairfield Osborne decided to label the skeleton in the American Museum of Natural History Brontosaurus, even though he opposed Marsh and Marsh's taxa. I'm not entirely sure why he would do that. Maybe he just liked the name better? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It is arguably a better name. Thunder Lizard versus Deceptive Lizard. But anyway. The American Museum of Natural History brontosaurus skeleton is the reason for so much controversy the last hundred years or so. So scientists thought it should be Apatosaurus, but the public knew it to be brontosaurus. And because you had millions of people going through there every year seeing the label brontosaurus on it. Yeah, and then it ends up in media and other things too. And we used to get into uh, conversations about that with people who weren't as big a dinosaur enthusiasts. Yeah, that's true. So the brontosaurus skeleton was unveiled in 1905 at the American Museum of Natural History and was the first mounted sauropod, another reason it was so well known. It was a mostly complete specimen, but it was missing its feet, lower legs, shoulder bones, and tail bones. The tail was mounted with too few vertebrae, but it was according to what Marsh thought it should be. The skull was also based on, quote, the biggest, thickest, strongest skull bones, lower jaws, and tooth crowns from three different quarries, end quote, which most likely came from a Camarasaurus, which was the only other sauropod at the time with known skull material. Adam Herman, who worked on it, couldn't find any brontosaurus skull, so he had to hand sculpt a skull to stand in. And Osborne made a note in a publication that Herman's skull was, quote, largely conjectural and based on that of Morosaurus, which is now Camarasaurus. And we should note that's really not uncommon because finding a completely articulated skeleton is very rare. So you're almost always sculpting different bones, and it's not uncommon to pick a skull from a sister taxa and just call it good enough because it's the best you can do. Yeah, and to date, there's still no brontosaurus skull that's been found. Hmm. But we know, I think we know a little bit more about how it looked, and it would not have looked like the boxy Camarasaurus skull. Yeah, because we know it's closely related to Apatosaurus, so you can figure their head to be closer than Camarasaurus. More elongated and whatnot. Yeah. So, an Apatosaurus skull was found in 1909 near a skeleton that was found to be an Apatosaurus specimen. This skull was similar to Diplodocus' skull, and so many believed it was an Apatosaurus skull, though Osborne and others rejected this. William H. Holland, the Douglas and Carnegie Museum director, believed it was an Apatosaurus skull, but he didn't put a head on the mount at his museum, possibly because he was waiting for someone to find an articulated skull and neck. But then he died in 1934, and after he died, museum staff put a Camarasaurus skull on their mount. The first Apatosaurus with an articulated skull wasn't found until 2011. In 1931, the Yale Peabody Museum created a unique skull where they based the lower jaw on a Camarasaurus and gave it forward-pointing nasals instead of it being based solely on what Camarasaurus's skull looked like. In the 1970s, John Stanton McIntosh and David Berman re-described Diplodocus and Apatosaurus skulls and found that Holland was right and that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus had a skull similar to Diplodocus. 
and so they reassigned many Diplodocus skulls as apatosaurs. In 1979, Carnegie mounted the first apatosaurus skull on a skeleton, and then the American Museum of Natural History did the same in 1995 and relabeled their skeleton Apatosaurus excelsus and corrected the tail. took until 1995 to correct that tail. Yeah. So in 2015, that's when Dr. Emmanuel Schopp and his team did a study that found that Brontosaurus was a valid genus and separate from Apatosaurus, though not all paleontologists agree yet. The study, again, was called a specimen-level phylogenetic analysis and taxonomic revision of Diplodocae dinosauria sauropoda. And in addition to Dr. Schopp, there was Octavio Mateus and Roger Benson, and the study was published in April of 2015. And this study found that two species that used to be considered Apatosaurus and Eobrontosaurus were now just Brontosaurus. So there's Brontosaurus parvus and Brontosaurus yanapin. And this is in addition to Brontosaurus excelsus being Brontosaurus excelsus again instead of Apatosaurus excelsus. Gotcha. So Brontosaurus parvus was first described as Elosaurus in 1902 by Gilmore and Peterson. Then it was assigned to Apatosaurus in 1994 and then to Brontosaurus in 2015. It includes a partial juvenile skeleton, a nearly complete skeleton that's mounted at Brigham Young University, and another partial skeleton. The oldest species of Brontosaurus is Brontosaurus yanapin, which was found in Wyoming in the Morrison Formation. It lived about 155 million years ago. It was 69 feet or 21 meters long and described in 1994 by James Fila and Patrick Redman, who named it a species of Apatosaurus. And the species name means breast necklace because it has pairs of sternal ribs that look like hair pipes worn by the Lakota tribe. Bob Bakker in 1998 said that it was more primitive than originally thought and named it Eobrontosaurus. The Greek word eos means dawn. And again, though, this is now back to being just brontosaurus, according to the 2015 study. So the original intent of the 2015 study was to revise the family tree of of diplodocids. Most diplodocid species were described in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and many holotype specimens were incomplete and fragmentary. So the study included 81 operational taxonomic units, 49 of which belong to diplodocidae. The study is almost 300 pages long and had analyzed 477 different physical features of 81 specimens and it, and it took visits to 20 museums in Europe and the U.S. In the study, as we talked about in our interview, they used algorithms to compare traits and if more than 20% of the traits were different, they classified the bones as their own genus. And I have a lot of good quotes from Shop and we... He gave us a lot of good quotes in our interview, but these were just too good to also not quote. So <laughs> we have more quotes from him. Anyway, he said that, quote, the border between different species and different individuals within a species was progressively much lower. And we were surprised when we got these results that Brontosaurus was valid again. So they had Roger Benson from Oxford University verify their results. And Roger Benson said, quote, The differences we found between Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were at least as numerous as the ones between other closely related genera and much more than what you normally find between species. Uh, in a lot of these articles, and there are so many because it was a huge deal when it came out, There's people are comparing Brontosaurus coming back as 
uh, to Pluto and hoping that Pluto will be classified as a planet again. <laughs> it's kind of similar in that Pluto didn't actually go anywhere. It's just whether you consider it a dwarf planet or a planet. But at the same time, Brontosaurus excelsus was always still a <laughs> species. It just had a slightly different name. So yeah, it's not quite as big of a change, but still a nomenclature thing. Yeah, that's true. So as Shop had said, this is a nice example of how science works and how this new finding can overturn more than 100 years of beliefs, which is crazy to think about. So Shop had said that this study couldn't have been done 15 years ago, but there's so many dinosaurs similar to Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus that have been found recently, so that made it a lot easier to re-examine. So, recapping, there are three valid species of Brontosaurus, according to the study. Brontosaurus excelsus, Brontosaurus parvus, and Brontosaurus yanapin. And the study found that Elosaurus and Eobrontosaurus are now synonymous with Brontosaurus. And that Brontosaurus amplus is an invalid proposed species and should just be combined with Brontosaurus excelsus. Marsh named Brontosaurus amplus back in 1881, but it's now considered to be a synonym of Apatosaurus excelsus, now Brontosaurus excelsus. Gilmore said this in 1936, McIntosh said it in 1990 and 1995, and Upchurch, and Barrett said it in 2004, though most studies also said there needed to be more detailed assessment. Although it seems like a lot of people agreed on that. <laughs> anyway, so the 2015 study said that Brontosaurus had, quote, one, a longer than wide base of posterior dorsal neural spines, two, the area on the scapula posterior to the acromial ridge and the distal blade is excavated, Three, the acromial edge of the scapular blade bears a rounded expansion at, at its distal end. And four, the ratio of the proximodistal length slash transverse breadth of the astragalus is 0.55 or greater. Yep, I think he didn't want to bore us with all those details, which is why he kept <laughs> saying, like, there are differences. <laughs> but it is... It's interesting to see exactly what the differences are. and They're all very specific parts of bones. So, yeah. There are. There's there's more to it for Brontosaurus excelsis, but do we need, want to get into that much detail? I don't think we need to. That's a, but if there you're are, interested, we will be linking the study on our blog so you can go through the 300 pages. It is interesting. Yeah. Suffice it to say they found seven significant differences. Yeah, for Brontosaurus excelsus. But to kind of make it more in more general terms, Brontosaurus had a higher, less wide neck than Apatosaurus. And Shop uh, has this great quote in one of the articles that says, so although both are very massive and robust animals, Apatosaurus is even more extreme than Brontosaurus, which I think is interesting if you think about their names, Brontosaurus being thunder lizard and Apatosaurus meaning deceptive lizard. <laughs> But Apatosaurus is the more extreme, robust one. Yeah. I guess that could count. That's a bit deceptive. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul Barrett from the Natural History Museum in London said, quote, It's the biggest study on this family. They marshal a lot of evidence and make a very good case. 
And it's taken us a long time to convince people that we shouldn't be using the name brontosaurus. Just as we've got to that point, it looks like we're going to have to turn around and say, actually, it's all right again, end quote. Yeah, it's pretty funny because we have had people say like, yeah, I know that brontosaurus isn't a real dinosaur. And then... And we have to say, ah, actually it is now. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone's fully convinced of this yet, though. So Brian Switek said the problem is there's no standard for choosing which traits are significant. So there's still some subjectivity when classifying genera. And this might not be settled until a brontosaurus skull is found. We talked about that a lot. Genera, classifying genera is very murky and you know, hand waving. But the main thing is you just want to be consistent within a specific group of dinosaurs. So yeah, which is what this study helped as we talked about in our interview. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's weird how there wasn't consistency within even this group. Yeah. To plot. Okay. So Kenneth Carpenter from Utah State University's Eastern Prehistoric Museum said the fossil that Apatosaurus is based on hasn't been described in detail and should have been in order to be compared to Brontosaurus. He said, quote, so is Brontosaurus valid after all? Maybe, but I think the verdict is still out. And then we've got paleontologist Donald Prothero who said, quote, until someone has convincingly addressed the issue, I'm going to put Brontosaurus in quotes and not follow the latest media fad, nor will I overrule Riggs, 1903, and put the name in my books as a valid genus. So there's... Not everyone is convinced, and it seems like there will definitely be debate. Although it doesn't seem to be quite as heated as Taurosaurus and Triceratops. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons is when you have 113 years of history of calling something by a certain name, there's a little bit of an extra burden on justifying changing the name. And they might think, well, we haven't really gotten to that point yet. And for everybody, that's going to be a different threshold. So... That's true. Just kind of takes a while to see where it settles out. I'm going to go ahead and believe. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brontosaurus was quadrupedal and had a long neck and a long whip-like tail and forelimbs that were a little shorter than its hind limbs. Originally, Brontosaurus and other sauropods were thought to be too heavy to walk on land, so it's thought that they lived partly in water, and we know now that's not true. If brontosaurus were completely submerged in water, it would not have been able to breathe because the water pressure on its lungs would have been too much. Also, most sauropod fossils are found in what would have been dry inland areas. Like other sauropods, brontosaurus had neck vertebra that was bifurcated, so it had paired spines, which meant it had a wide, deep neck. And its neck had air sacs to help make it lighter. And it also had tall spines on its vertebrae, like apatosaurus. And it had long ribs compared to other diplodocids, so they had very deep chests. Brontosaurus had stout arm bones and a large claw on its forelimb and three toes on each foot. Each toe had a small claw as well. Why there's a claw on the forelimb is unclear. It may have been for defense, though it's not the best size or shape for that. It may have also been used for feeding or used to grasp things like tree trunks when rearing. That sounds pretty crazy. It does. <laughs> I would love to see that. Maybe as like a juvenile or something, it might make more sense than as an adult. I don't know. Why do spiders make webs? There are lots of good reasons to make webs. But if you're just looking at the fossils, how do you know? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Originally, Brontosaurus was thought to have a short tail, but 
Brontosaurus could crack its tail to signal to others or show dominance or warn predators such as Allosaurus, Torvosaurus, or Ceratosaurus. Brontosaurus excelsus is the largest species, and it weighed 15 tons and was 72 feet or 22 meters long. An adult Brontosaurus parvus is estimated to have weighed 14 tons. Sauropod trackways show that they moved as fast as 12 to 19 miles per hour, 20 to 30 kilometers per hour, and moved on average 12 to 25 miles or 20 to 40 kilometers per day. I wonder how they estimated that distance per day. That sounds a little That does odd. sound like a lot. But I mean, it sounds like that would be pretty hard to tell from a trackway. Yeah, that's true. Maybe a little more speculative there. <laughs> hard to say. Uh, even though we don't have a brontosaurus skull yet, uh, scientists think it had a small head. Also, it swallowed stones to help it digest, and it may have reared up to reach high plants or fight for mates. Brontosaurus may have been a solitary kind of creature, but it's unclear. Brontosaurus has been featured in film, ads, stamps, and lots of other media, though. So there's Gertie the Dinosaur, which was Windsor McKay's animated film, one of the first, and Gertie is a brontosaurus. Also, Brontosaurus and Allosaurus battled in the 1925 silent film The Lost World, and Brontosaurus is also in the 1985 movie Baby Secret of the Lost Legend, and it's the logo of the Sinclair Oil Corporation, it's that green dinosaur. A full-size Brontosaurus model of Sinclair's Brontosaurus was at the 1964-65 New York's World's Fair as well. In 1989, the U.S. Postal Service made four dinosaur stamps, and one was Brontosaurus, which people at the time complained as, quote, fostering scientific illiteracy, end quote. So the Postal Service said in Postal Bulletin 21744, quote, Although now recognized by the scientific community as a potosaurus, the name Brontosaurus was used for the stamp because it is more familiar to the general population. They also said, quote, Similarly, the term dinosaur has been used generically to describe all the animals, i.e. all four of the animals represented in the given stamp set, even though the pteranodon was a flying reptile rather than a true dinosaur, end quote, which people did not complain about. I would have definitely complained about that. That's outrageous. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Like we just call it that because people... People are always wrong about this. Is it a very good defense? Well, no, I think it's funny that people were upset about Brontosaurus, but not Pteranodon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So Stephen Jay Gould, a paleontologist, wrote an essay and book partly based on this. The part bully for Brontosaurus says, quote, touche and write on, no one bitched about Pteranodon, and that's a real error, end <laughs> quote. Though he did agree that Brontosaurus was a synonym for Apatosaurus. And, of course, we've got Brontosaurus as Littlefoot in Land Before Time, which came out in 1988, the first one. The rest are not worth watching. But anyway, that's another topic. <laughs> so Brontosaurus is part of the family Diplodocidae, which includes Diplodocus, Supersaurus, Barosaurus. It's also part of the subfamily Apatosaurinae, which includes Apatosaurus. The family... Name, Diplodocidae, means double beams, and the clad has 12 to 15 species that lived in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous. Compared to Titanosaurs and Brachiosaurs, Diplodocids were slender and long with short legs, and their back legs were longer than their front legs. Many may have had spines on their back. They had very long necks. They may not have been able to lift their heads as high up as other sauropods, and they had small heads and peg-like teeth. They probably didn't chew, but instead swallowed gastroliths to digest their food, and they had long whip-like tails that they could snap. Diplodocidae was originally known as 
Amphisolidae, named by Edward Cope in 1878, but became a forgotten name. Charles Marsh also named the family Atlantisoridae back in 1877, but that also became a forgotten name, a nomum oblitum. Very interesting. <laughs> you can tell Sabrina was really into Brontosaurus by the length of that dinosaur of the day. <laughs> it's great. Yep. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day goes back to the complexity of genera. Back in January, we mentioned that the dinosaur genera list listed 1,007 dinosaur genera, which is at the higher end of valid genera counts and is listed on polycora.com slash dino list. It's not a peer-reviewed article or anything like that, but it's really hard to find just how many dinosaur genus there are, and this is one of the more frequently used lists. But since that number of 1,007 in January, it's now up to 1,027 for 20 more, and both of those lists include Brontosaurus. I think that makes it official. <laughs> I guess so. A guy on the internet put it in his list. Yeah. All the, it's so hard to go through all of the genus to see if I agree with the way they're accounted for. But all the ones that I have personally checked, I agree with. But I've probably only checked 20 or 30 of them out of the 1,027. So it's hard to say. But it does show how the number of genera is still rapidly increasing and that's partly due to the fact that a lot of times in paleontology, you give every species a new genus unless you have a real good reason to lump them together. So That's fine. Keep this podcast going. <laughs> <laughs> well, new species works too. It doesn't have to be a new genus. Yeah, that's true. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening and for being our listeners. We're so happy and grateful that we've made it to 100 episodes. It's a huge milestone for us, and we hope to keep going for a long, long time, and it's because of listeners like you. Yep, and I went back and re-leveled the audio on all of our older episodes, so I don't know if if you were listening back in, I would say, the end of 2015, there was a period there where a lot of our episodes were really quiet. And if that frustrated you into not listening to them, they are now at the correct volume. So hopefully they're worth listening to. Yeah, we've, we've learned a lot in the last hundred episodes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have. And we've gotten a lot better equipment too. Yeah. So if you want to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Good day.